everyone, and welcome to today's webinar, The Role of Pulsed Radio Frequency Energy for Treatment of Pain. Before we get started, I'd like to go over a few items so you know how to participate in today's event. You may have joined the presentation listening using your computer speaker system by default. If you'd prefer to join over the telephone, just select telephone in the audio pane and the dial-in information will be displayed. You will have the opportunity to submit text questions to today's presenter by typing your questions into the questions pane of the control panel. You may send in your question at any time during the presentation and we will address them at the end. I would now like to introduce Dr. Ravi Mapuri. Dr. Mapuri specializes in pain management and practices in Naples, Florida. He graduated from Lake Erie College of Osteopathic Medicine with his medical degree in 2011. He completed a fellowship at the University of Nebraska and residency at the University of California, Irvine, which is affiliated with the Veterans Affairs Medical Center in Long Beach. He has a background in the research of pulsed radio frequency. He is a member of the American Academy of Pain Medicine. Dr. Mapuri is both board certified in pain medicine and physical medicine and rehabilitation. Go ahead and take it away, doctor. All right, thank you for the intro, Nikki. Um, afternoon, everyone. Thank you for joining us on this webinar presentation. Um, so basically the topic I'm going over today is the role of pulse radio frequency energy for the treatment of pain. And we'll kind of go over what that is and, and some of the evidence and things related to it. Um, you know, as a background again on myself, I'm a practicing um, pain management physician. And so a lot of my take might be in relation to how it applies to me as a pain management and how it may apply to you as well. Um, also, I've done some research in a few different IRB studies related to pulse radio frequency energy and a different approaches uh, using percutaneous and transcutaneous. So we'll begin this uh, presentation. So this is kind of a brief overview of the agenda, you know, going over pretty much what is pulse radio frequency, how it works, the mechanism of action, why do we even need pulse radio frequency, and what is the current uh, evidence from a literature standpoint in regards to pulse radio frequency. Um, so kind of going over, um, you know, pulse radio frequency is a method of pain management by applying short pulses of radio frequency signals, and these signals then will generate an electromagnetic field. Um, one of the big concepts of what makes it pulsed versus non-pulsed is the temperature. So, you know, heat averages 42 degrees Celsius or less. So in essence, this is non-ablative. If it was going up to the higher temperatures above 42, it may have more ablative properties, can damage nerves. Um, so that's one of the differences that it's staying below 42 degrees Celsius. And then, you know, why are we calling it pulsed? And this... Um, kind of shows you like a diagram of how the thing works you know between each pulse is the frequency you know and then the height of it represents the amplitude um but then within each pulse it's like a burst of a bunch of signals and then it stops in a burst of a bunch of signals and so that's kind of what this is resembling um and so the pulse width represents the width of one of these small little pulses um and it's important to kind of discuss it a little bit just because these settings can be adjusted um, when you're doing that and it may have a difference in clinical outcome. So again, you know, it's non-invasive, non-thermal method of um, delivering electromagnetic energy. 
usually the frequency ranges from um, one to a thousand hertz um, and the bursts from the pulse that we talked about earlier can be from 10 microseconds to one microsecond, um, making it non-ablative in approach. So, you know, we'll, we'll talk about this later on, this type of slide, but I'm just kind of giving you an example so that it kind of drives home that the settings will matter. Um, you know, there was one study that was done where you were comparing um, people with uh, back pain and leg pain from, uh, you know, like post-laminectomy type syndrome or failed back syndrome. And, you know, if you change the pulse uh, width, you know, this one was shown in this study, you could see that there's a, a difference in clinical outcome. So going at 42 microseconds, you know, the average pain scores went from 4.9 to 2.9, um, as opposed to just 38 uh, microseconds in width. And the same thing applied in the leg pain. You can see that in these graphs, there was a superiority using um, 42 microseconds over 38 um, after a 60-day trial. So Energetics have some influence on it. And again, there's multiple settings that can be tweaked, which I was kind of showing you earlier in that earlier graph. Um, so one of the devices that we're mostly focused on in today's lecture is Provant, um, which is a non-thermal carrier frequency of 27.12 megahertz. And this is applied for 30 minutes. The, um, the settings on this particular device is at 42 microseconds in pulse width and one kilohertz. This generates an electric field of 591 volts per meter at a depth of five centimeters. Um, the, you know, the, the electric field strength does have importance, you know, because in all these settings at the end of the day help form that type of electric field and magnetic fields that come with it too as well. Um, and, and a lot of that's maybe the main source of where the benefits are coming because if you need enough field strength to depolarize the cells and, and cause reaction. Um, so how much it produces and at what depth will make a difference. And again, you can just tweak the settings to kind of create that. And that's sort of what this device has done is come with pre-tweaked settings that will generate at that field, which makes it convenient. Um, so kind of here's a picture of it. You know, it's a dual field, high energy electromagnetic therapy um, pretty much, you know, sensation-free when you put it on, you know, uh, it's not like you're feeling like large pain or anything when you apply the device onto it. So it, it's mostly paresthesia-free. So what is the mechanism of when you're using um, pulsed radio frequency energy? Um, there's multiple methods of how it may be beneficial. You know, still, of course, always more literature, more research coming out in terms of how it can be utilized and what it's working on. But, um, Increasing endogenous opioids, increasing matrix metalloproteases, chondrocyte proliferation. Um, and you'll notice that those two, you know, when you're talking about matrix metalloproteases and chondrocyte proliferation, uh, that sometimes has to do with wound healing stuff too, which there was some prior studies in relation to pulsed radio frequency. Uh, but for the premise of this lecture, we're mostly going to be referencing in terms of neuromodulation and um, reducing uh, pain levels. Um, also reduces microglial activation, that's more of a pain concept, and enhancing the noradrenergic and serotonergic um, inhibitory pathways. So this is just kind of showing you some of the titles of uh, some of the literatures that are kind of talking about the mechanisms. You know, it's not just me 
picking random things that there were studies and, and that's where a lot of these um, genes and growth factors and stuff were pulled from. So here's just an example of some of the sources um, published. But here's another way of looking at it in a different diagram in terms of the pain component for pulse radio frequency, you know, increasing the endogenous opioids, um, which has a more of an antinosusceptive effect, helps reduce the pain, increase endorphins, dynorphins. Then you have the part that may help with the anti-inflammatory component, the cytokine and edema related genes. So, you know, interleukins are an inflammatory component. Um, you know, aquaporins are uh, channels typically in the dorsal root ganglion, which have a lot to do with stimulation of pain. Then there's um, resolvins, um, you know, like it sounds like resolve the anti-inflammatory part. That's what when they're released at tort to help resolve um, inflammation um, during that phase of the inflammatory cycle. Um, and then also here's the growth factors with resolution that we talked about earlier, um, you know, increasing extracellular matrix and growth factors. So now going on to the next, you know, what is the importance of pain treatments and stuff? You know, and ideally it'd be nice if we could just put people through an entire electric field like this, although nothing exists like that. But, uh, you know, maybe one day in the future. So the importance is kind of um, based on we need more treatments in the pain realm. So the VA in particular has been fairly aggressive in relation to the opioid safety initiative. Um, they definitely took some big steps on making some recommendations and changing the way opioids are used. So in, in the VA, um, many of you may be already aware that they've made large cuts into the amount of opioid prescriptions, in many cases, taking a lot of their patients off of it. Um, just based off of studies and evidence in terms of treating things chronically. Um, that's now, just to be clear, the safety initiative did not say not to prescribe opioids ever, but that there's a lot of limitation essentially in the use of opioids for chronic pain because the body adapts to these things over time. And so, uh, you know, changes are made. And so a lot's been done. It's a quite large initiative that applies to all the VA um, but then again, academic centers and plenty of other in the industry are trying to make cuts into the opioids because they may not be as effective as once originally thought. Again, not saying that they don't have a role, but maybe not as much of as a role as it used to be in the past. Um, pain affects quality of life and consumes healthcare resources. Uh, you know, this is a study where, you know, you're taking chronic pain patients and measuring their quality of life and how many of them think they're able, unable to perform it to the same degree that they used to. Um, you know, it affects exercise, sleep, hobbies, chores, socializing, walking, you know, sex, concentration, relationships, work, and childcare. So a lot of people feel with chronic pain that these activities are drastically inhibited, um, which is what this slide's trying to reflect. Um, particular in the VA, um, you know, 90% of patients with uh, pain are being managed by primary care. And as such, it's one of the most costly disorders treated by the VA. So having alternative modalities to treating um, pain patients is important. In addition, you know, it's a little bit easier for me as a pain management doctor because that's all I get to focus on. But, you know, since primary care is handling that, there needs to be options for primary care to be able to prescribe to in the interim before maybe a patient's able to see someone like me in pain management 
and go on to additional therapies. So having devices, different medications that are non-opioid based that can help reduce pain are helpful, um, that are easily prescribable. So now talking about the Provant device in particular, we'll kind of talk about how it's used. Um, it's it's fairly easy device. <clears throat> you just It's designed to be used at home, which is among the lowest cost care um, setting that you can have. You've just placed these disposable applicators uh, cut onto a treatment pad, and then basically you're placing it over the site of pain, and um, you just push the start button, plug in the device, and um, you know it goes for 30 minutes, and you're doing it twice a day typically. Um, and it can be applied to dressings and clothing, although then again, you know, if there's no uh, wound infection or you know any reason you can't set it directly over the site you know you probably would rather do that than instead of over clothing because again it puts the device closer to the source of pain um, because depth does make a difference um, this is an fda clear device with the 510k indication um, you know with its labeling through the fda to be used in post-operative pain um, edema of soft tissues. Um, so typically in my particular practice, we're using it for um, chronic post-operative pain for the main labeling based on FDA clearance. So what is the evidence, you know, in terms of pulsed radiofrequency electromagnetic energy? Um, so we'll kind of go over some articles and stuff of where it has been shown to have some benefits. Um, and then of course, you'll be able to ask questions at the end regarding it. So this is one that is um, talking about um, case reports. So, you know, we'll start off with some of it, you know, in this particular uh, 15 case reports, they used it across different indications, you know, plantar fasciotomies, post-cervical fusions, lumbar fusions, post-chest surgery, a lot of post-surgical indications. And, and basically in this particular um, study, it was kind of showing in, you know, as preliminary improvements, you know, that their pain was before Provan, after going down from a 10 to two, uh, from a five to nine to a zero, but pretty much in most, all the cases there was improvement. Um, but I guess the more interesting part that can be derived from the case reports, because obviously case reports have limited in evidence, is that uh, patients were having um, medication changes um, where they were able to cut back on it and reduce. And in a lot of these cases, there were significant cuts, if not uh, into the um, what they were taking um, after using Provance. So I, I think that was the bigger take-home message for me that it may have some influence on reducing that. Um, so then another one, and this is a study that I um, participated in and, and, and designed and developed um, along with one of my mentors, Dr. Patricia Nance. Um, it was a we did a retrospective case uh, series, an IRB-approved study at VA Long Beach. And you know, part of the reason that we decided to do is because we were treating the patients with it, but we wanted something objective to see, are they really getting benefit from it You know, if we were to take a look at it? Because we already had a design when we would prescribe it, when we would follow up with it. It was already as if a study was being done, but we've never actually sat down and compared them all. So <clears throat> we got IRB approval to do it and then was measuring based on when we would follow up with the patients just routinely as part of our treatment, not study related um, when we first decided to do this. So um, 
because we were already treating them, we were measuring them right after the trial period and then at four weeks and eight weeks. And we compared all the um, um, numeric, numeric pain scores that we had um, to it. And it did show improvement and we're kind of going to go over into more details about it. But, um, you know, at the Long Beach VA, you know, it kind of became known as the Long Beach protocol on how we would do these trial phases and issue to the patients. Um, basically, it's similar to what I told you, you, you know, before you issue the device to the patient to take home, they would come in, use the device for 30 minutes. And if they're reporting pain relief, then we would issue it to them to take for 30 days and we would extend it up to 60 days. Nowadays, it can be extended even further up to potentially 120 days. But at the time of this design, you know, most of them would give for 30 days. And if they asked to extend it to 60 days, we would do that for them too as well, um, up to their preference if they wanted to do an additional extension. Um, and so that's sort of how we did our protocol. And it's still being used for multiple other uh, ways, but that, that just gives you an example of how you can decide whether to issue someone the device is by giving them a trial phase. Um, here's the numeric pain scores across those 40 patients. Um, you know, initially, you know, numeric pain score 7.9. After the trial, it did have some improvement um, to 5.6. With the, um, and then from the post-trial to four weeks, there was also improvement. And then from four weeks to eight weeks, there was further improvement. So we were seeing continuous stream of, you know, essentially like a linear type improvement. Um, and the p-values, you know, were, were were very strongly in favor that it was quite statistically significant, um, you know, with P001 um, and then P.006, which is, is pretty good. So we were glad to see that it was kind of showing statistical improvement. Um, here's another thing when we broke down, we kind of broke down all the different diagnoses that we were using um, and then just kind of comparing their uh, initial pain scores post-trial one month and two months. And you can see that in most of the diagnoses, there was somewhat of a trend of improvement. That being said, you know, the um, power of this, I wouldn't say is enough to draw like a statistical, all oh, that's uh, statistically beneficial for each diagnosis, but it kind of is showing the trends. The main statistics was when we compared them overall, where we could, you know, show that statistically it was making a difference. Um, so going on to another study, um, you know, published by uh, Sorrell. Um, this is a group of patients who had received um, post-op, who had post-operative pain after lumbar surgeries, um, and they were measured at baseline in over 60 days. And this also is related to that energetic slide I showed you earlier improvement. So they actually, you know, randomized into a sham who really wasn't receiving the actual treatment, but they would put the device and not really run it at the right sense and then do it to an active. And you can see that there was improvement um, technically in both the active and sham, but there was a much significant improvement into the active. And this one was actually statistical improvement compared to the sham. Um, additionally, the study also measured um, C-reactive protein um, which is kind of interesting because, uh, you know, sometimes pain can be from an inflammatory component. So this is sort of a way of doing a blood test to see what is their inflammation levels. And when they're uh, running the device that it actually had some decrease in their C-reactive proteins before and after, 
Well, when they ran the sham, it actually went the other degree and went up. <clears throat> As a um, reminder of C, um, CRP, um, normal is considered usually three or less, um, but it also depends, of course, on the lab and error and, and which component of CRP are they're measuring. But for this particular one, three and less is usually what is uh, considered normal. So there was some improvement with that in the active and not into the sham. Um, and this kind of kind of shows it all together when you're kind of comparing at the 42 milliseconds, the experimental 38 and sham. Um, there's improvement with the Provet in terms of the pain scores and the, um, this one's for CRP and then this one's a reflection of the pain scores, much more better at the 42 microseconds versus sham and experimental, which were not very statistically significant. Um, here's another article, um, you know, that was uh, published by Murray Tavner, you know, using uh, transcutaneous pulse radio frequency treatment. Um, this one, their device that they used for this was sort of a makeshift device using Neurotherm. I don't believe it's something that's commercially available, but basically <clears throat> pain management physicians are used to having um, devices in their clinic where we, if we wanted to do like percutaneous pulse radio frequency, um, we could do with the needle. Um, of course, insurance typically won't cover those type of uh, procedures. But um, in this one, they used that device and was able to um, attach it to a transcutaneous-based device to make it work for the purpose of this studies. So it was randomized, double-blinded, placebo-controlled, and you know, 50 patients were divided into sham versus transcutaneous pulse radio frequency. And um, you know they started to do measurements and comparing. You know after having them uh, do walks at 20 meters versus 400 meters and measuring their visual analog scale on a scale of zero to 100. And in this one, it showed improvement in the active versus the sham. You know this chart's a little bit hard to read, but basically they're showing that at rest, that um, in the shams at one week and four week, the pain's kind of going up. And this is reflection of the change, not the actual score. So it changed, it improved by two points in the sham here for 20 meters and actually was going up in pain score at the 400 and at four weeks, you know, not too much of a change. Here in the active, um, where they were actually using the device to um, give pulse radio frequency, you know, you had negative points, which means there was improvement, you know, of one, 15 and 10. Remember this is on a scale of 100. Um, and same at four weeks compared to the baseline, it was still showing improvement. So with continued use, you know, between one week and four weeks, there was definitely improvements. And this one was uh, measuring, um, you know, a it has a way of measuring function too, because they're measuring the uh, how far they're walking. And this was applied to patients who had um, total knee replacements. Um, um, who are waiting for it. So before they even got it, they said, let's try this before we start giving them and see how they respond to it. So Tavner, using the same type of device, actually did another study, you know, kind of in uh, concept, um, you know, prior to surgery, these were patients who were booked for surgery. Um, and this one is measuring, the, um, again, the visual analog scales. Um, so 51 patients, um, and then they're measuring them at four weeks and 12 weeks and kind of comparing how their pain scores were. 
So the shams are these ones in blue here, and they're, um, you know, you can see it's very small changes, and in fact, not that um, significant, which the study didn't show any statistical significance. Um, where it's in, but here you're seeing drops compared to at, um, you know, at nighttime measuring the scores, there was a drop from the original of 56.5 going down to 32 and 39. Uh, at rest, you know, which is a usually typically people aren't as pain when they're just sitting doing nothing, but there still is improvement there. And then doing activity <clears throat> dropping from 69 to 48 in the scale of, uh, out of a scale of 100 um with activities so it this is the advantage of this one is that these are double-blinded placebo-controlled trials kind of showing this type of evidence um and then you know there's a course um that was provided to me by regenesis regenesis um whom helps manufacture the provent uh pulling data from their own internal um, so they have patient care coordinators and nurses who track these outcomes, including the pain relief and quality of life. And when they were using those type of, um, they're just analyzing the data. And, you know, 74% of their internal data is showing that patients were having reduced pain scores. But of that 26% who wasn't getting the benefit, they were showing um, that 72% of that group had improvement in their daily activities and also that same group of that 26 percent that they were also 40 percent of them had improvement in their sleep you know so functional gains still are um in, important into uh even if they didn't get the numeric pain score change and this is in terms of uh also internal regenesis data uh where you know a lot of it's probably uh collected by the representatives you know asking them are they satisfied with Provant and the services and the follow-up and then this is kind of showing the data of you know 99 percent for for most of it and then you know would they recommend Provant to others 96 percent which is really high and this is data from 6,584 patients from 2009 to 2018. Um, and in addition, you know, Regenesis can help monitor patient treatment compliance in two ways. You know, they have patient care coordinators that you can always reach out to, um, you know, if you have questions about the, the coding and insurance and um, also, but the biggest part is helping the patients, you know, training them how to use it, maybe sometimes doing the trial testing for you, um, and also the disposable applicator covers and stuff and, and renewing that and making sure that you know month to month patients have the adequate amount of um, applicators if they run out and it's somebody that they can contact directly as opposed to sometimes having just to contact the physician so it kind of makes your life a little bit easier um you know so <clears throat> a lot of this particular topic was focused on the transcutaneous approach for um pulsed radio frequency um but but there are other methods, but this one is among the easiest way for a patient to receive it that doesn't require invasive, you know, injections into the, the patient. So here's a list of several of the references um, that I utilized in terms of the evidence. Um, and hopefully this was informative, but, you know, I tried to leave a lot of time to kind of go over questions um, that you might have in regards to any form of pulsed radio frequency that I'm able to to answer. Um, so I'll 
leave it up to you guys for any questions that you have for me. Okay, great. Thank you, Dr. Mapuri. We're now going to begin answering the questions submitted during, today, during today's presentation. So as a reminder, you can still submit questions to the questions pane of the attendee control panel. So our first question is, what patient diagnosis do you typically utilize pulse radio frequency energy on in practice the most? So for me personally, as a um, interventional pain management, you know, the biggest referral source that we get is typically back pain and neck pain. So a lot of the back pain patients who have tried treatment stuff, uh, this is something that um, I would be more readily inclined to utilize. Um, failed back syndrome is, is certainly something, especially because multiple options have failed and it's a great option. But then again, you don't have to make it uh, you know, a second or third line. It can be among the first line. Um, I also like to use it as encouragement to get some patients off of opioids. You know. A lot of the time, they don't want to transition off the opioids because they don't have an alternative to use. And 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 this is something when you're giving people different methods that it will help facilitate that process. Okay, great, thank you. And when using Provant, do you have patients receive other therapies in addition to it? Uh, yes. I mean, to be honest, in most cases. Um, our patient, my patients at least, you know, they're always receiving multiple therapies. You know, the standard of pain management is still multimodal care, which means you don't rely just on medicines, physical therapy, injections, um, electromagnetic devices. Uh, it usually requires a combination. So uh, in prayer, just because they're receiving, you know, Provent doesn't mean I'm not doing, you know, facet injections or epidurals. Um, or not having them being sent to surgery, even if it's indicated. Uh, it, it's I'm, most cases I'm using in conjunction with other treatments. And and keep in mind, you know, no one's trying to say that if you use this device, it's taking someone's pain down from a 10 to one and they don't need anything else. It's something that is a great adjunct for reducing the pain. You know, you saw the scores in our study, you know, maybe it's going from a seven to a three or a four. So that's still very helpful from a patient, especially when you're living in chronic pain day in and day out. But having adjuncts is always, you know, an encouragement to use for almost any diagnosis across the board. Okay, thank you. And what are your thoughts on PRF therapy for the treatment of significant pressure areas? Um, so when you say significant pressure areas, are you? I'm presuming that the question is making reference to like where people might be prone to pressure ulcers or, or, or wounds in that area. Um, if the area is painful, I think it's something that can be um, considered, you know, if it's highly irritated uh, or like an actual open wound, I, I even though this has some source going into, um, you know, wound care where there were some prior studies using pulsed electro, uh, you know, because of the FDA labeling and indication, I would be a little bit hesitant to use it over an open wound, so it's not typically an IRR. But if it's just a common error that's sealed and closed, I think it would be a, a reasonable option to use. You know, if you're using it on the sacrum or the heels or, or or back of the head, as long as it's not open wound or actively infected. Um, and again, I'm assuming the question was making reference to those pressure-prone areas for patients who have less mobilization in those areas. 
Okay, great. And do you notice an increase in general pain in people that have issues such as fibromyalgia? Any systematic effects? Um, for pulse radio frequency energy? No, I think it's actually, I have some fibromyalgia patients I, I have used it on. Um, you know, in fact, that one site where I had where that whole guy was in the electoral field, I think would be great for a fibromyalgia patient. Um, they normally, my experience has been good. Again, though, it, I, you know, it's not like I have a large sample or I can recall a study making reference to fibromyalgia in particular. But, you know, fibromyalgia patients, you know, the, the core for treatment is, you know, opioids are not the most ideal treatment for fibromyalgia patients because whatever the reason, there's an oversensitization to pain. Um, so opioids aren't the great treatment typically for that. Um, and usually they're medication resistant. Of course, there are the FDA labeled medications. So naturally I would try those first, you know, the FDA labeled fibromyalgia meds. But using that in addition, if they're having pain that stands out in one area more than another, then, then I do target that, whether it's with injections or Provent. So if they're fibromyalgia, but they're like, my back pain is 70% more than the rest of my body, I think it would be a beneficial treatment again assuming that they have an area that stands out if it's just total body pain and everywhere is just as equal as another i don't think it's going to generate the uh result you would want especially because how could you possibly cover all that but uh i can say from experience i've seen benefit in fibromyalgia patients who've had neck pain or back pain stand out more than another and it has been successful for me personally um again i can't recall a study to that has been done yet on that particularly. Okay, great. And can it be used for back pain that is non-operative to replace use of opiates in long-term? Can you repeat that question one more time? Uh, yeah, so can it be used for back pain that is non-operative to replace use of opiates in long-term? Yes, I mean, in fact, I think to be honest, uh, that would be uh, an, uh, a great indication to to utilize it for, you, you know, um, a lot of conditions, you know, medically are not necessarily, uh, you know, surgical. You know, there, there's obviously the ones that stand out, you know, when pinched nerves and weakness in the legs and stuff, those are standout surgical. But for um, back pain um, in particular, that's not necessarily going to surgery. I think it's a it's a it's a great option and is one of the biggest indicators to to consider. Um, but you you may want to use that again as an adjunct with with other treatments. You know uh, wh whether it's interventional injections or stuff, um, because it will depend sometimes on uh, if you want to issue the device to get it coded. Um, to be issued, sometimes it needs to go under um, chronic post-procedural pain. So you, you usually have to try an intervention or something in many cases to get it covered. But if that wasn't the case, it still could be used right away if it was covered by their insurance plan. Okay, thank you. Thank you. And would you use PRFE Provent before ablative procedure or after? Um, So, in those, if I think their pain, you know, so ablative therapy typically implies that you feel strongly that's facet origin. So, um, 
me personally, it can be used as both. And you can give the patient the option, I think, is, is a reasonable thing. Um, but if I feel strongly that the pain source is at those facet joints, you know, as an interventional pain manager, of course, I'm going to be a little bit biased because that's sort of in, in my wheels what we do. It, it, I would target those joints in particular because if you ablate it, you know, the, the data on it is that you might get six months to a year um, after ablating it. So I think if it's strongly that now, if you think it's more than facet origin and you're like, well, I think it's, you know, maybe 40% facets and 60% muscle spasm, then I think you might find a benefit of using uh, Provan over the ablative therapy. But if I feel that the source is facet in origin, then I would um, uh, probably go for the ablation technique. But then again, you'll do a test block first anyways to kind of help confirm or refute that it is facet in origin. Um, and so that's not what I would use. And then, you know, um, sometimes people will do, since you brought up facets, um, pulsed radial frequency in the facets itself using percutaneous approach, but insurance typically does not cover that anymore either. So mostly everyone is doing ablative approaches um, for facet, unless you're using a transcutaneous approach such as Provan. Okay, thank you. Um, and someone is asking, um, and is this available overseas? Uh, Wait, is this available in overseas areas that get treatment at VA? Um, and I know Scott, or our organizer, if you're not sure, he just let us know that it's not available overseas, only uh, outside US. Or it's it's not available, or it is it is VA overseas, it looks like Scott is saying. Um, okay. And then, so kind of a follow-up, I'm listening in the UK. Do you know of any similar studies, treatments here? Um, where they're using, so I, in terms of whether the UK is using um, Provan in particular or pulsed radial frequency, I, I don't know about the transcutaneous device because um, Provan is, you know, a, a, a patented device at specific settings, um, and so I wouldn't know if that. I don't, to my knowledge, I don't know if it's available in, in the UK that particular device or any competitor. Um, but in terms of pulsed radio frequency, the concept I'm quite sure is being used in the VA because it's not just a. a um, a US-based concept, but most of those I suspect are going to be in reference to the percutaneous approach, where you can take a needle and you you um, place it into the site of pathology and, and then run it at a pulsed radio frequency level. But it, you know, that was being done a lot more historically in the US, but when insurance stopped covering it, you know, it started to kind of fade away in, in its use. But I have read pulse radio frequency being used percutaneously in multiple countries, so I'd imagine it would apply to the UK too as well, because I know they do ablative procedures there. Okay, thank you. And then um, PRP injections or steroid in conjunction with Provence. Thoughts? Um, so I think both are fine. You know, doing steroid injection and Provence, you probably don't those can be done quite close together. 
you know, if you're doing a day apart for me, I wouldn't anticipate uh, there would be too much of an issue other than just trying to wait to see if the steroid shot helped. In terms of um, PRP or platelet-rich plasma, uh, you know, most of the time when you inject platelet-rich plasma, you're inducing an intentional inflammatory reaction. So if you are going to use Provent in conjunction with that, you're probably going to wait um, at least two to four weeks. You know, of course, this is, you know, not exactly scientifically determined, but um, because Provent may have an anti-inflammatory component. So you don't want to mix an anti-inflammatory with a pro-inflammatory component like platelet-rich plasma. So if it was me and my practice personally, I would probably give them the PRP, and if then they still had residual pain, you know, four weeks later, then I would use the the Provent, but not together at the exact same dates within the first two to four weeks, um, because you want the tissue to heal, and that's inflammatory for platelet-rich plasma. Okay, awesome. So I believe that was our last question. I do not see any more questions coming through. Um, so I do want to thank everybody for joining today, and thank you very much, Dr. Ravi Mirpuri, for an excellent presentation. And this does conclude our webinar, and I hope you all have a great day. All right. Thank you for having me.